Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, I'm Dr. Robert Pearl, former CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, Kaiser Permanente, a Stanford Medical and Business School professor, a Forbes contributor and best-selling author of the book Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong. And I am Jeremy Kaur, host of the New Books in Medicine podcast. American healthcare is broken. Across the United States, there are over 200,000 patient deaths from medical error every year, growing physician burnout, outdated technology, and inconvenient and delayed care for patients. And on top of all of this, skyrocketing drug prices and increasingly unaffordable out-of-pocket patient expenses. For decades, our nation's political and medical leaders have talked about fixing the American healthcare system, and yet the problems are now greater than in the past. Every other industry that is inefficient and ineffective has experienced disruption. Healthcare will be no different. The question is whether the solutions will come from inside the healthcare system or be imposed on it. We'd like to invite you to listen to our new podcast, Fixing Healthcare with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Each episode will feature one of the top leaders and innovative thinkers in healthcare today. The show's format is simple. The guests will present a roadmap for fixing American healthcare's biggest problems. And from there, Jeremy and I will scrutinize the plan and help listeners separate fixes that have the potential to succeed from simply the hype. Our goal is that everyone from healthcare consumers to political and medical leaders will find value in the discussions on our show. You may not agree with the different solutions offered, but you will never again conclude that nothing can be done. We hope you will join us. Please subscribe via iTunes or your favorite podcast software. For more information, visit our website at www.fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. everyone and welcome to New Books in Medicine. I am your host, Jeremy Kaur. Today we will be talking to the national best-selling author, Sam Keen. Sam's work has appeared in the New York Times Magazine, Mental Floss, Slate, Psychology Today, and New Scientist. He has also been featured on NPR's Radio Lab, All Things Considered, and Fresh Air. He's here today to talk about his book, The Tale of the Dueling Neurosurgeons, The History of the Brain as Revealed by True Stories of Trauma, Madness, and Recovery. Sam, welcome to the show. Hello, thanks for having me. This book was actually recommended to me by my sister, who is a huge fan of yours. Um, I then found out that my other sisters and parents are fans too. Um, while reading this book, I, I can see why I had a very hard time putting it down. You know, like I told you before the interview, I, I literally read it in two sittings. Um, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um, I have a background in physics and English literature. Those were the two subjects that I studied in college at uh, University of Minnesota. And I loved science. I thought I was going to be a scientist for a long time, all through high school and through most of college. But uh, a few years into college, I realized that uh, temperamentally, at least, 
I maybe wasn't cut out to be a research scientist. I just didn't enjoy spending time in labs the way that a lot of other people did. Um, a lot of tinkering, a lot of troubleshooting all the time. I found it very frustrating, whereas other people kind of thrive in that sort of atmosphere. And I realized I didn't want to specialize necessarily either. I wanted to you know, explore a lot of different topics. And for better or for worse, uh, modern research labs aren't really set up to do that. You have to focus very narrowly on one topic. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically, for the first time, I, I was thinking about, well, what if I don't want to be a scientist? What if I want to do something else with my life? And that's kind of when I picked up the English major after I realized that maybe I don't want to be in the lab. And eventually, I came back around to science because I missed it. I wanted to be involved in science, even if I wasn't necessarily working in the lab. And writing about it turned out to be a perfect fit for me because I didn't have to do the experiments myself. I could let other people who enjoyed doing them do them. And I didn't have to specialize either. I could kind of write about whatever topic uh, caught my fancy that day or that week. So what inspired you to write The Tale of the Dueling Neurosurgeons? Well, originally, uh, I had read some stories about people who suffered injuries in one part of their brain, and their behaviors changed in these very unusual and very specific ways. And when I was first reading these stories, uh, I, I just thought the authors had had made a mistake. I, I thought, you know, there's no way these stories are actually true. They just seemed a little too outlandish. Um, and I just thought they, they obviously made a mistake somewhere. So I kind of set out to disprove these authors sort of for, for my own satisfaction and ended up feeling kind of dumb because, of course, they were right and I was wrong. Um, but it did get me thinking like, wow, you know, this is really a fascinating subject that I don't know much about. And what really caught my attention was the fact that these injuries that changed their behaviors really provided a good way of understanding how those parts of the brain worked. And I started accumulating little stories like that. And one day I eventually realized, you know, wow, I bet you could write a whole book just going around the brain from part to part and saying, you know, when this part gets injured, here's how people's behavior change. And that can teach us this about the brain. So giving stories of everyday people, how their lives were changed in sometimes awful, drastic, funny, unusual ways based on these injuries and then what that reveals about how the brain works. And so eventually I thought, oh, you know, maybe I actually should write a book like that. So that's really where the book came from. Well, I'm glad you did it. It's great. Uh, let's talk for a second about Henry II, King of France. Now, a lot of people actually know this story from, you know, the famous Nostradamus prophecy. Uh, mm-hmm. He had the jousting mishap that resulted in the brain injury and ultimately death. Um, would you please share this story for our listeners and uh, the work of the dueling neurosurgeons who looked after him? The title, yeah. So this was – he was a king of France uh, in the 1500s, sort of a macho king who enjoyed getting out there and you know jousting and swordplay, all that stuff. Uh, and as you said, he got in a pretty bad jousting accident 
one day during a tournament. Uh, basically, the lance that his opponent was using snapped off, and the butt of it hit him right in the eye. So, you know, it was blunt force in addition to splinters. It was pretty bad injury. And because this was the king, all of the greatest neuroscientists and doctors in the kingdom were sort of called in to try to help him out. And a lot of them, I mean, this was just medicine at the time, they were, you know, giving him ground up bits of mummy or, you know, bleeding him, doing all of the things that we look back on and we know that probably weren't doing any good and maybe were doing active harm in some cases. But he did, uh, in addition, call in two people in particular, uh, Ambrose Pare and Andreas Vesalius, who are considered two of the founders of neuroscience. And they were kind of rivals uh, in that they had, uh, you know, been kind of sending out um, uh, these sort of uh, papers where they were uh, kind of criticizing each other's work. Uh, and this was the first time they actually got to meet face to face. And they were the ones who kind of diagnosed what was wrong with the king and the fact that uh, he'd probably suffered a fatal injury. So while all the other people were, you know, giving him these sort of quack cures, they were really doing some um, what we can see now as pioneering neuroscience uh, working on and with the king. So both presidents Garfield and McKinley were assassinated. Both assassins were mentally ill, uh, but in different ways. Uh, the autopsies of both assassins were actually performed by someone with the last name Spitzka. Uh, can you share these stories with us and uh, their major scientific significance? Yeah, so uh, these were you know two presidents who were assassinated within about uh, 20 years of each other, uh, late 1800s and early 1900s, Garfield and McKinley. So Garfield's um, assassin almost certainly had schizophrenia. It seems he was pretty obviously deeply mentally disturbed. He'd actually been seeking a job from Garfield. He wanted to be uh, ambassador to Paris, which uh, given his mental state was a, a bit of a reach, uh, to put it mildly. And he was, uh, you know, very involved in these sort of utopian cultish religious communities. And he eventually decided that God was telling him to assassinate the president uh, for various uh, reasons that, uh, you know, don't really make sense nowadays. But he was convinced he needed to assassinate Garfield. So he ended up shooting him down at the uh, train station in Washington, D.C., and uh, they did an autopsy on him because they wanted to figure out, uh, you know, if there was something wrong with his brain. And this was a very early era of autopsies uh, when they were doing them on a more regular basis, but they didn't quite have an idea of what was going on yet. Uh, in particular, they could have obviously seen if there was some sort of gross abnormality, you know, like an abscess or a tumor or something. Something like that. They didn't have a good grasp on the idea that there might be chemical imbalances or something on a really fine cellular level wrong with a brain. And that's probably what was going on in the brain of Garfield's assassin. 
um, was that he probably had chemical imbalances, something like that, that was leading to these delusional thoughts, things like that. So they actually um, considered the uh, brain of his perfectly normal, even though nowadays, in retrospect, it seems pretty obvious he had some sort of a mental problem like schizophrenia. Uh, the assassin of McKinley, about 20 years later, is a little more ambiguous. He wasn't obviously mentally disturbed, but there are signs there that he possibly was. Uh, unfortunately, they sort of railroaded him in the trial. It was very short, um, uh, didn't have much of a chance to defend himself, and they executed him rather quickly afterwards. So we don't have as much detail as we do about the other case. But again, a uh, so to back up a little bit, the person who looked at Garfield's assassin's brain um, was a man named Spitzka, as you said. And it turns out his son was the one who ended up doing the autopsy on the other brain. So this this kind of a father-son thing going on there where they looked at the brains of these two assassins in American history. So it's kind of an unusual historical connection for the father and son to be connected like that. But they did have this connection through the assassins of these two presidents. Mm-hmm. James Holman famously traveled the world in the 1800s. He went on some very extreme adventures. He traveled to Siberia, mapped the Australian outback, charged into war zones, climbed Mount Vesuvius mid-eruption, to name a few. Uh, Altogether, he traveled an estimated uh, 250,000 miles. This alone would make anybody an absolutely fascinating person. Yet there was something about him that made him especially unique and interesting. Can you talk to us about James Holman and his adventures and what made him so unique? Yeah, well, the unique thing was that, uh, you know, despite traveling this incredible number of miles, uh, especially for the uh, early 1800s, he did all this while he was completely blind. And uh, there, there were some even more unusual things about it in that he wasn't blind his entire life. So he didn't go blind until I think he was in his mid-20s or so. So he was fairly young, but he had been a seeing person for part of his life. So he didn't grow up uh, blind and he didn't do any of this travel with companions or, you know, he would do some of it with a companion and then go with someone else. So it's not like he was just being led around by the hand everywhere and people were just sort of, you know, bringing him along on their adventures. He was very adventurous on his own and would do these things completely on his own. And the way he did this was basically he uh, developed a system of rewiring his own brain. Now, he wasn't consciously trying to rewire his own brain, but that's effectively what he did. Uh, What he would do is he would take his cane and, you know, I'm sure we've all seen blind people nowadays. They sort of use the cane almost as an extension of their arm to sort of feel their way around. Holman did something a little different in that he would take his cane and he would click it on the ground and it would produce a sharp noise, sort of like a retort. And from that, he would hear echoes around him. And from these echoes, he would sort of be able to map out 
the space around him based on where the echoes were coming, the reflection of these sound waves. So this is basically what bats do. They send out these uh, high-frequency noises. Uh, they come back, they echo back, and the bats can navigate at night based on those echoes. James Holman was doing almost the exact same thing uh, with uh, just this cane, and he learned how to do some amazing things. As you said, you know, he was traveling to all these different countries, climbing Mount Vesuvius, uh, hunting down slave traders, all these sorts of really fascinating adventures while he was completely blind. And it fits in with the book because I talk a little bit about how there are certain cases nowadays uh, people make clicking noises or do things like that where basically they're doing the same thing. They're making a noise, hearing the echoes come back, and from that they're navigating the world around them. And by doing this, these people end up rewiring their brain. So we have a big section in the back of our brain, uh, the occipital lobe, that's very involved with visual processing. But when these people, when they put them in brain scanners, they look at the activity going on in their brain. When they're doing these echoes, uh, making these noises, the occipital lobe, that visual part of the brain, ends up lighting up in them. It's actually processing this echo information as visual or probably more accurately spatial information. So basically they've repurposed this part of their brain in order to be able to use all that available all those available neurons to help them navigate. So it's an example of how the brain really kind of amazingly can rewire itself uh, in unusual circumstances. Can you talk to us a bit about synesthesia? Yeah, so synesthesia is really uh, fascinating. It's something uh, – one of the, the real highlights of the book, I think. Mm -hmm. So synesthesia is basically cross-wiring between different sensory input in the brain. So sometimes uh, – the most common ones are people will be reading a text – and they will see different colors for different letters. So D might be a certain letter, and F would be another letter, and G would be another letter. Excuse me, they would be another color. So F would be one color, D would be another color, G would be another color. And so the text for them is sort of this multicolored, um, sort of like you know uh, the coat of many colors, the proverbial coat of many colors. A text would be like that for them. The other common one is that when people hear music, they also see colors. They see flashes of colors, sort of like, it sounds to me like a firework display almost in their mind. Um, so that's the usual ones, the more common ones of the senses being crosswired. But other people report really unusual ones where they might mix up textures and um, uh, tactile input. So they might feel a wrought iron fence and it would taste like, they would get a taste in their mouth like fried chicken or they would, you know, touch the denim on their pants and they would get a sensation like they were biting into an orange. So these really unusual uh, connections between different sensory inputs that you just wouldn't ever think to connect, but in their brain, they're sort of wired like that. So we don't know exactly what's going on there, but there seems to be some sort of cross-wiring between the different sensory parts of their brain that gives them uh, this really rich and unusual way to look at the world. Yeah, it's it's hard for me to even comprehend, you know, tasting the color blue or or or, you know, any of those other weird kind of uh, ways that synesthesia can affect someone. 
Yeah, and people often comment uh, to sort of reverse it. It's very hard for us to even understand what's going on in their head. Mm-hmm. But when people, non-synesthesia people, explain to them what the world, what their world is like, they feel sorry for us. They feel like we're living in this <laughs> impoverished world where you know things just aren't as rich and interesting as they are for these people. So they uh, they can't understand us either. How common is it? It's not very common. Um, I, I don't know if I have any numbers exactly on it. Uh, as I said, the music and the letters one are the most common mm-hmm. ones. And it's not like they're rare. It's not like, you know, one in 10 million or something like that. Um, we've probably even met synesthetics at some point in our life and just not realized it. But it's not that common either. Yeah, one of the, the fascinating parts of the book when you were talking about it was when, what was it, the orchestra composer was like, you know, conducting and he was telling his, his the members of the, the, the symphony like, hey, no, 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 that's not blue enough or, or you're playing too violet right now. And they would be like, what is going on? Yeah, they, they were just baffled because he would describe that he wanted the tones to come out in these different colors. And obviously they didn't know what he was talking about. And even if there had been someone with synesthesia in the orchestra, it probably wouldn't have helped because often the um, the associations between, mm-hmm. say, a note and a color are very idiosyncratic. So they'd be different in different people. How How is it possible that some people have brain damage uh, where it is so specific that one person uh, cannot tell the difference between animals, uh, but can tell the difference between anything else just fine, or that someone could tell the difference or couldn't tell the difference between fruits and vegetables, but everything else is just fine. How does that work? Yeah, so that was actually when I was talking at the beginning about uh, the stories that I didn't believe were true. (laughs) These were some of those stories in that, you know, as you said, you get damaged in one part of the brain, a very specific part of the brain, and people suddenly lose all ability to tell different animals apart. And this just seems so outlandish and ridiculous to me that I, I didn't think it was true. But there are cases out there where this can happen. So the basic idea is that we have some circuits in our brain that are specialized in recognizing certain things. Probably the best known one is the facial recognition circuits we have. Human beings are very, very good about telling different faces apart. I mean, objectively, most people's faces look almost identical, but very subtle shifts in the way faces are put together are pretty easy for us to tell apart. So that's because we have this part of the brain sort of dedicated to um, uh, just recognizing, classifying different people as uh, different faces as different people. We have something similar with animals in that it's very good at telling different types of animals apart. You can actually see this in little children. You know, they love talking about, you know, what types of animals these are, what type of dog this is. They just love talking about different types of animals, talking about different noises they make, things like that. So it seems we have some sort of inbuilt uh, you know, instinct or inbuilt circuits in our brain that want to talk about and think about different types of, of animals and another circuit that for similar reasons talking about different types of plants. And according to our evolutionary history, it kind of makes sense that we would have this uh, because it would give us an advantage. If you think about our ancestors long ago, sort of wandering around in the wilderness, if you were really bad at telling different animals apart, that would be uh, a bit of an obstacle to your survival. If you couldn't tell, like, you know, 
one type of snake from another or, you know, that this animal was dangerous whereas this animal's fine or plants. You know, if you couldn't tell this one was poisonous and this one was good to eat, you probably weren't going to last very long. So the people who could do those things, who could recognize and classify plants and animals ended up having an advantage. And because they had an advantage, um, their genes ended up spreading. Those circuits ended up being wired into our brains, and we are the beneficiaries of that evolutionary process today. Uh, the only downside is that if that very specific part of the brain gets injured, then that knowledge can sort of poof, disappear out of people's minds. And this is pretty rare. You don't see this often, but you do every now and then see people who just can't tell, you know, elephants from raccoons, from dolphins, all those animals look exactly the same to them. So it's one of those cases where it's hard to even understand what's going on in their mind. But mm -hmm. neuroscientists have studied this, have looked at, uh, you know, examined people, done papers about this, and it seems to be a legitimate disorder some people have. You know, to your point before, you know, uh, my, my two-year-old son, he can tell the difference between every different type, well, not every different type, but, you know, a ton of different types of animals, and he talks about that all the time. Mm -hmm. You know, even in reading your book, it's like, I can't comprehend how someone couldn't tell the difference between a, a an elephant and a rabbit. You know, it's just so fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess to think of an analogy, if, uh, you know, if you don't read Chinese or something mm -hmm. uh, and you were shown, uh, you know, just sort of flash two characters in Chinese script that looked, you know, not that uh, different, we probably wouldn't really be able to tell them apart. We would just, you know, be looking at these things and being like, I really don't know what this means. And I don't, it seems to me that's what it's kind of like for them. Like they're looking at it and they just can't quite parse what these things are. So I'm a big history buff. Um, and I, and this is a, the, the story I'm about to ask you about is one I had heard of before and have always kind of found fascinating and always, you know, kind of curious to learn more about it, but never got around to it. Can you share with us the case of George Dedlow? So George Dedlow uh, was sort of this um, unusual case in that there was a cover story, uh, the Atlantic Monthly, in 1866 about a Civil War soldier who, through a series of unfortunate mishaps, ended up getting all of his limbs uh, amputated at different times. So basically, he had he had lost everything. He just had one. Uh, he had he had no limbs left at this point. And there was a cover story in the Atlantic Monthly, as I said, about what his life was like. And, you know, uh, it, it was really an affecting, very moving story for a lot of people in that, you know, it sort of epitomized everything that, uh, you know, all the pities and all the sorrows of world, or excuse me, uh, not of World War, of the Civil War were sort of encapsulated in this one person. And donations actually ended up starting to pour into this hospital where he was staying at. You know, they would get, you know, nickels, dimes, everyone was sending in money to this hospital in Philadelphia where he was. Uh, there was only one problem in that uh, George Dedlow didn't actually exist. This was a fictional story written for the Atlantic Monthly, and they didn't do a good job back then, I guess, of differentiating between the fiction and the nonfiction. 
And uh, it wasn't intended as a hoax or anything. It was just sort of a, uh, you know, a, a short story that they ended up publishing. And people were so affected by it, they actually made, you know, thousands of dollars worth of donations to this hospital based on this story. And it became kind of a famous story for one specific symptom that was mentioned within the story. And that was Dedlow uh, claimed that he could feel his limbs even though they'd been amputated. So it's what we call nowadays um, ghost limbs or phantom limbs. He was feeling them when they weren't there. And in fact, he could move them into different positions. Sometimes he would feel cramps in them. He would feel pain in them. And it's sort of unusual in that this is one of the very first cases in uh, all of literature of someone writing down these symptoms about phantom limbs. It didn't really appear in medical journals. It appeared first in this story in the Atlantic Monthly. So it's kind of an entry point to talk about uh, in the book, in my book, to talk about uh, the idea of phantom limbs, where they came from, how they arise, but also why this was the first time people started talking about them. They actually developed some new types of weapons some rifles in particular, and new types of bullets during the Civil War that made amputations much more likely than they had been in previous wars. So you finally started to see a lot of people for the first time with missing limbs, and they finally got enough cases where doctors realized you know, that this is actually a symptom. It's not that people are crazy and they think they can feel these phantom limbs. They really are experiencing this for good neurological reasons. What is laughing disease? Laughing disease is uh, a disease that's now called Kuru. Uh, laughing disease was sort of a nickname that was given to it. Um, it arose among some tribesmen and tribeswomen, especially in Papua New Guinea in the 1950s and 1960s, especially. So what it was, was it's a prion disease. Uh, probably the best known prion disease today is mad cow disease. Uh, this was a different, subtly different form of this prion disease. And basically what it would do is it would go in and it would destroy uh, different parts of people's brains, especially the movement centers in their brains. And so they would, you know, start shaking, they would lose the ability to walk. And eventually, one thing it did is it sort of, um, uh, I'm trying to think how to put it, it sort of destroyed some of the parts of the brain that might inhibit us from doing something like laughing. So, you know, when we're out in the world and we see something, uh, we might want to laugh at it, but we might, you know, hold back for various reasons because part of our brain is saying, no, don't laugh right now. That would be inappropriate or something like that. So it eventually destroyed these parts of their brains that would inhibit them from doing certain things like laughing. And once they were destroyed, they would sort of laugh uncontrollably or, you know, laugh without reason. And so it got the nickname of the laughing disease from that. And in the book, I use it as an exam uh, as a chance to talk about these prion diseases and how they affect the brain. Um, but it was really a fascinating medical mystery too, in that no one could figure out for a very long time what was causing this disease. They looked at the genetics of the people involved; that really didn't hold up. They looked at the 
uh, the possibility it might be um, uh, a virally transmitted or transmitted by a bacteria. That really didn't hold up. And in the end, what they ended up discovering is that it was actually caused by cannibalism of all things in that uh, the people of this of these tribes in Papua New Guinea, they would eat their relatives after uh, they had died. It was considered a, a part of their theology in the body would not go to the uh, sort of heaven that they had in their religion if you didn't consume the body. And they consumed every part of the body, uh, including the brain. And unfortunately, somewhere along the line, someone did have one of these prion diseases. And when people ate this person's brain, they ended up ingesting these little prion molecules that cause it. They are not really digestible. They don't get destroyed during digestion. They eventually ended up in these people's brain and they started a new generation, a new round of prion diseases in the people who had eaten this person. And then unfortunately, these people would die of the prion disease. They would consume them in a new round of ritual cannibalism and the disease would spread from there. So it took a lot of really great detective work, medical detective work to figure out what this disease was, um, how it was affecting their brains and uh, basically the neurological um, uh, problems that it was causing. Are there a lot of these prion diseases out there? There aren't a lot of them. Um, There are different ones. I mentioned mad cow disease and there's a few other ones. There's one called fatal uh, familial insomnia as they think the name of it. Uh, And in this case, people actually cannot fall asleep. Their bodies lose the ability to fall asleep. And eventually after, you know, a month or two of this, they end up dying from this disorder. And it's also caused by a prion disease. So there are a fair number of different types of them, but each one is exceedingly rare. Mm -hmm. But yeah, they're kind of a fascinating window into how the brain works and um, all the unusual ways that sort of you can unravel the workings of the brain. Yeah, it's that was definitely a very interesting chapter of your book. I tell you what, the, one of my favorite stories uh, from your book was uh, of Harvey Cushing. Um, he had the fascination with the pituitary gland, and he got a, a new medical resident to bribe a priest so that he could do an autopsy on the body of a giant at a funeral parlor against the witches of the family to steal organs back and bring them back to Cushing's lab. Can you tell us that story and <laughs> what were some of Cushing's contributions to neuroscience? Yeah, um, as you can tell in this and other stories, uh, medical ethics were a little, uh, little in flux, um, we will <laughs> say, back then. Uh, they did some things that uh, we would not condone or allow today, um, including this story uh, that you mentioned. It was a, a neurosurgeon named Harvey Cushing, pioneering neurosurgeon, one of the absolute giants of uh, neuroscience, 20th century medicine. But he did, uh, he was a little bit ruthless sometimes when he was going after um, new specimens or new things to study. So as you said, he was fascinated with the pituitary gland. Um, With the pituitary gland malfunctions or if there's a tumor on it, something like that, one thing it can do is it can cause gigantism. So it can cause people to sort of grow uh, out of all, um, uh, grow out of proportion 
proportion to what you know their parents were or anyone else. So the, that's how you get a lot of you know um, uh, seven and a half footers who were born to parents who were only like you know five eight or something like that. So it probably wasn't genetic. They probably had something go awry in their pituitary gland. Uh, and in this case. Um, Cushing had been talking with the giant, with this man. He was living in Baltimore, I think, and had been talking with him and wanted to get his organs after he died because he wanted to study them. Uh, but the man did not want this autopsy to take place. So uh, Cushing, unfortunately, sent an assistant to – oh, no, sorry. The man was living in Washington, D.C. That's right because Cushing was in Baltimore. He sent a man to Washington, D.C. and to basically invade the funeral home, pay off the funeral director to lock the family out while this guy – did this impromptu autopsy on the giant and took away various organs from the giant. And finally, the family, you know, figured out there was something going on in there because you could hear the sawing going on in the other room. And the assistant ended up basically grabbing up all the, the jars of organs, running out the back door where he had a cab waiting for him. The family burst out there, started throwing rocks at the cab as he was speeding away. And at the end, of all this, uh, the guy, you know, got back to Baltimore, exhausted, gave Cushing all of the organs that he had liberated from this giant. And Cushing's uh, response to this was to get furious at the guy because he missed this part of one gland or something like that. So, you know, this guy had rocks thrown at him. He had to bribe a priest, all this stuff. And Cushing was just mad because he missed this little this part of an organ. So Harvey Cushing was a a, a bit of a ruthless fellow in some ways. Wasn't this the uh, the the medical resident's like first day on the job too that he was asked to go do this? Yes, it, I mean this was basically his introduction to Harvey Cushing. Was not you know hello nice to meet you. It's here's money to go bribe a priest and steal these <laughs> organs, and then I'm going to scream at you when you didn't do a perfect job. Uh, yeah, on your first day. So the guy was a little mad. He was he was uh, very close to quitting after that, but ended up sticking it out. So what what are some of Cushing's major contributions to neuroscience? So Cushing was one of the pioneers in figuring out, first of all, how the pituitary gland works, so what it's responsible for, what it does. Uh, it's not actually part of the brain. It's a gland right below the brain. It's sort of hanging off it like a little, um, you know, like something dripping off the bottom of the brain. Um, so figuring out that uh, and how the brain affects that, affects the hormones it sends out, different things like that. Uh, he was also a pioneer in neurosurgery, so figuring out how to do different types of surgeries on tumors, um, on the pituitary gland, different types of things. So those were probably his two biggest contributions was figuring out the pituitary gland and pioneering several different new types of neurosurgery. Another crazy story from your book um, is that of SM. She literally didn't feel fear. And scientists kind of hilariously, in a sense, dreamt up all these different ways to try to scare her. Can you talk to us a bit about that? And how is it even possible for someone to not feel fear? Yeah, so uh, the these studies are actually they're 
they're a lot more lively than your average scientific paper since, uh, you know, basically there's scientists sitting around thinking up, uh, you know, different ways to frighten this woman and failing each and every time because she just was incapable of feeling fear. So the, the basic problem she had was that when she was young, she caught this rare disorder. Uh, it's called Urbeck wife disease uh, that destroyed her amygdala. So these are two small almond shaped um, organelles inside of our brain that process several different emotions, but they're very closely tied up with fear processing, especially. Fear is the one emotion that really seems to rely heavily on the amygdala. And because her amygdala were destroyed, she was basically incapable of feeling fear. Um, and the scientists tested this by doing things like, you know, taking her to an exotic pet shop and letting her hold snakes and seeing how she responded to holding these gigantic snakes. And, you know, not only was she not afraid of them, she was petting the snakes. There was one anecdote where she was trying to, like, grab the snake's tongue when it started hissing at her, which, you know, even if we were tempted to do that, most of us would quickly realize the snake was not happy about this and we would back off. But she didn't feel afraid of the snake sort of writhing and getting mad at doing this. She kept trying to grab its tongue. Uh, another amusing story was they ended up taking her to a haunted house that was in this old lunatic asylum. So, you know, lots of monsters jumping out and dark passageways with creaky floorboards, all this stuff. SM really didn't care about this. She wasn't frightened by anything. Uh, but toward the end of it, there was actually someone in a sort of gory mask with all this blood all over it. This person jumped out, tried to scare SM, and she just kind of you know, looked at him and was like, okay, you know, it wasn't very scary. But she was sort of interested in the makeup that he had on because it was really well done. It looked a lot like blood. So she started approaching this monster with the blood all over it and in fact sort of lunged at him. And at the end of this, she ended up scaring the monster <laughs> Because the monster was sort of backed into this corner, and then all of a sudden this woman is lunging at him. So it, it ended up you know, spiraling out into sort of this ridiculous story. And all of the stories about her are like that, in that, that she's just incapable of feeling fear. And no one really – or they, they, the neuroscientists studying her really wanted to know what was going on in her brain. And it's kind of a fascinating case because – I guess maybe in the abstract, a lot of us would think like, wow, you know, how great it would be if we didn't feel fear. You know, you would feel no fear just walking up to someone and talking to them. You could be in front of a large crowd. It wouldn't make any difference. You know, you wouldn't be afraid. You would never be worried, you know, like, am I a coward or something like that? You know, you, you would have no fear of anything. And that could be really great in some circumstances. But what they learned is that Actually, a good, healthy sense of fear is helpful in a lot of situations because she ended up doing all of these really dumb things that most of us would avoid doing. So she, for instance, would dri be driving on the road and she would find a snake in the middle of the road. And, you know, instead of either going around this snake or just waiting for it to move, she would get out, she would grab the snake and like toss it off the side of the road when most of us wouldn't do that because because we'd realize like I should be afraid of this snake it's going to bite me or she would do something like you know cut through a park 
when uh, uh, you know late at night it was not lit and you know there was a, a man lying on a bench somewhere sort of a vagrant person lying there and the man told her to stop and to come over and talk with him and instead of running away like most of us would she was like okay that sounds like a great idea <laughs> would walk over and end up talking with this person who pulled a knife on her held it to her throat she eventually got away from it uh, but because she had no fear response, the next night she cut right through the park again. She just <laughs> walked right through it, having no ability to sort of learn from her mistakes the way that most of us would. That's yeah, I can't again, one one of these stories I just can't comprehend that well. Uh, can you talk to us a little bit about uh, Walter Penfield and his work with epilepsy? Yeah, so Penfield, uh, like uh, Cushing, was sort of a pioneering neurosurgeon um, and did some even more fascinating things, I think, in these surgeries than Cushing ever did. Uh, The thing that really caught my eye about Penfield was he would do a lot of surgeries where the patient was awake at the time. So uh, the brain itself does not feel pain. It has no nerve ending. So once you sort of numb the scalp area, you can remove part of the skull and you actually work with the brain while a person and is conscious and speaking to you. And in fact, Wilder Penfield operated on his own sister this way. He opened up her head and was actually operating on his sister while she was awake and talking to him in the operating room. And Penfield was, uh, he got involved in um, sort of the, uh, trying to probe the boundaries between consciousness and I guess a better way to put it is he was trying to probe the boundaries between the physical and the mental side of the brain. So basically, how does this a three-pound lump of molecules, you know, fat, water, proteins in our skull, how does this three-pound lump give rise to something like consciousness? And he was very interested in probing that. Um, And during these surgeries where people were awake, he would do different, uh, you know, small experiments on them. He would try to stimulate one part of the brain with a small um, bit of electrical wire and, you know, very, very small, very subtle, uh, Uh, current going through there. But by doing that, he could evoke memories in them or he could get them to smell things that weren't in the room or get them to move their limbs in different ways. So by doing this, he was really trying to probe the boundaries between the physical and mental sides of the human experience and the human brain and kind of a pioneer in doing this type of work. So not only was he a Uh, um, a really great neurosurgeon in a technical sense, but he kind of had the bigger picture in mind and was trying to figure out these big sort of meaty philosophical questions about the self, the nature of consciousness that philosophers have been debating for thousands of years. One of the most interesting chapters of your book uh, was the one, uh, Slights of Mind, which discussed some of the different kinds of delusions people can have. Can you tell us... uh, essentially what delusions are and give us some examples of different types of delusions? Yeah, so a delusion is basically when someone is convinced of something that is just 
obviously ridiculous or obviously wrong. Um, I sort of get into the chapter by talking about uh, Woodrow Wilson, who I don't know if a lot of people know it, but he actually suffered a stroke um, during his second term and ended up having, you know, some of these delusions where he, you know, was, uh, he was just acting in very, very strange, unusual ways. But other people, um, they have even more fascinating delusions. Probably the one that stands out the most, um, is there's a symptom called cup gras syndrome, uh, where people are convinced that all of their loved ones have been replaced by imposters. So the they they know that this you know so imagine uh, you know you and your father your mother for instance you know imagine um, interacting with them and they look exactly like your mom and uh, you know they they have all the same memories that your mom did and but you're just convinced that this person is not actually your mom. Sometimes people are convinced it's some sort of cyborg. Sometimes they're convinced it's a very talented actor. Um, sometimes people are convinced of other delusions, like it's an alien or it's a hologram or something like that. And what basically happens is they have something um, they have a disconnect in their brain. So I talk a little bit about how, you know, when we see a face of a loved one, we don't feel it consciously, but we do get this sort of ping of emotion in our brain. And it's part of what helps us recognize a person. So not only do we recognize them visually, but we get a certain feeling when we see that person, an emotional rush, even if we don't consciously feel it. Well, in these people, they're still able to tell that it's a certain person visually. So they can tell that the face belongs to this person, but they're not getting this rush of emotion anymore, uh, this good, happy feeling when they see this person. So they're convinced that this isn't the real person because the person feels sort of dead to them and they, they just don't think it could be this person anymore. And the unusual part is that they end up sort of spinning it out into this elaborate conspiracy of how this person got replaced and why there are sinister forces, um, you know, at work here uh, replacing these people. And sometimes it's not just one person. Sometimes people are convinced that thousands of other people in their lives have been replaced and that there's this worldwide conspiracy basically to uh, kidnap and kill all of their loved ones. So the book or this chapter specifically talks about different types of delusions like this, how they arise, and what it can tell us about how the brain works. For instance, the fact that when we recognize somebody, um, we're getting both that visual cue, but also that emotional cue. And it's something you really wouldn't have been able to tell, except in a disorder like this, where you're finally able to tease those two ideas apart. So what is the difference between the right brain and the left left brain? How do they interact and, and how do they work together? Yeah, so I think most of us have probably heard this idea of, you know, there's left brain things and there's right brain things or even left brain people and right brain people. And there's actually kind of a backlash against this nowadays where uh, sort of understandably people think it's gone too far and they sort of insist there's no difference between the left brain or right brain, that it's all sort of hooey. Um, and I understand that because in a lot of cases, this sort of pop science you hear about it has gone too far. But we 
we do know that there is a difference between the left brain and the right brain, and it sort of does follow the stereotypical things that you think of. Um, the left brain's a little more logical. Uh, it deals with language and things, uh, you know, um, like mathematical things, spatial reasoning. It's a little better at that. The right brain is a little bit more um, artsy, I guess, for lack of a better word. And it's the combination of these two things that give people um, the different attributes and personalities that they have. And in some people, they are a little more right brain because they are a little more creative, a little more artsy. Other people are a little bit more logical. It just depends on which side of the brain is uh, the, the dominant one in most people most of the time. Uh, can you share the story of Phineas Gage for our listeners? Yeah, so this to me is one of the really fascinating uh, cases in the book. Um, I kind of save it for the last chapter for a reason. And he's probably the most famous meta neuroscience patient in history, if not the f most famous uh, uh, medical case period in history. So Phineas Gage was a railroad worker in Vermont uh, in the mid-1800s. And he was working one day. They were trying to blast some rocks away to sort of clear a path for this railroad that they were putting in. And they were putting a little bit of gunpowder in a hole and to blow up this rock. And he, his responsibility was to take this iron rod and to tamp the gunpowder down. So to tap the gunpowder, to push it down and to pack it in there tightly so they could blow this rock apart. No one quite knows what happened, but while he was doing this, packing it down uh, with this long iron rod, uh, packing the gunpowder with this iron rod, he ended up accidentally scraping the iron rod against the rock. It created a spark, and basically the iron rod took off like a javelin. And with the way he was standing and the way the hole was facing – the iron rod ended up hitting him in the face, ended up blowing through the top of his skull, blowing completely out the top of his skull, and landing about 25 yards behind him. And it went th completely through his brain, through the uh, front part of his brain. And the really amazing thing was that not only did Phineas Gage live through this, but according to some accounts, he didn't even lose consciousness. He was awake during this whole thing. And we do know that regardless of whether he might have been out for you know a second or two even, within a few minutes, he was – he was up and walking around. They got him into a cart. They brought him into town. He was cognizant of what was going on around him. Obviously, he was bleeding. He was not in good shape, but he was awake and aware of things going on around him. And the reason he became such a fascinating uh, case in neuroscience history uh, actually a couple of reasons, but the first reason was that even though Phineas Gage lived through, through this horrific accident – his personality changed afterward. And that was something new in neuroscience to think about your personality being um, uh, having, having a material basis basically in your brain. And in fact, they were able to sort of locate 
the parts of our brain that must help determine our personalities based on the parts that were destroyed in Phineas Gage. So nowadays it seems kind of obvious that what's going on in our brain would give us uh, you know, attributes of our personality. But his was really the first case where they were able to almost pinpoint um, where these parts in the brain were based on what got destroyed. So that was the first reason he was famous was that his beha- or his personality changed uh, after he had this injury. The other reason why he was uh, uh, been sort of well known is that there's a, kind of a lot of legends about Phineas Gage in that the stories of how his personality changed were that you know he became a bandit or he became a grouchy drunkard or you know he was abusive and mean to people. They were mostly negative stories uh, about how his behavior changed in these awful ways and, in fact, made him sort of an awful person. But if you look at the historical evidence, there's actually very little supporting the idea that um, Phineas Gage's behavior changed in bad ways. We know his behavior did change because his doctor mentioned these things like that. But the ways his behavior changed weren't in some cases, necessarily bad things. They weren't, you know, they made him a different person, definitely. His family, you know, struggled to sort of reconcile the before and after person, but he wasn't necessarily a bad person. So I talk a little bit in the book about how these legends arose about him, what we really know and what we don't know about Phineas Gage, and what we can take from his, uh, his amazing story today. Well, Sam, I've taken up a lot of your time today, um, and my final question for you is what are you working on now? So actually working on a couple of different things. Um, Since this book came out, I've actually uh, come out with another book. Uh, It was called Caesar's Last Breath. Uh, and that was a book about the atmosphere, so about the environment, uh, environmental science, sort of along those lines. Um, and I am putting together with my editor um, some ideas for a new book right now. We haven't quite nailed anything down yet, so I, I can't quite reveal what we're working on. But it's probably going to be more of a physics book uh, this time. So the books I've written about so far, I've written about chemistry, genetics, neuroscience, environmental science. Uh, I was a physics major, but physics is the one topic that I haven't really written about yet. So I've been kind of, uh, you know, eager to write about that. I think I'm going to go in that direction for the, the next book that I'll find that'll come up. That sounds great. Uh, when you have it finished, you'll have to let me know. I, I can't wait to read it. And I hope to have you uh, come back on the show to talk about uh, your other books as well. Okay, that'd be great. I want to thank you again for being on the show today. I've really enjoyed it. It was an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Take care. Thank you. Thank you.